What's up, folks? Welcome to the nasty 19th episode of the Next Bite Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking about why you might want to actually get microchipped with a vaccine, uh, keeping up with Moore's Law, and a NASA intern's initiative to diagnose all spacecraft failures. Roll the intro music. I'm Daniel. And I'm Forbode. And this is the Next Bite Podcast. Every week, we explore interesting and impactful tech and engineering content from Weevolver.com and deliver it to you in bite-sized episodes that are easy to understand, regardless of your background. All right, folks, we're going to get popping with these articles, but first I want to give a quick shout out to our friend Nick G., who was the first person to give us a review after we said we were going to give you shout outs last time. So thank you, Nick, for your review. And I just want to reiterate, everyone, if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, the link's going to be in our show notes. It's in the bio of all our socials. If you leave us a review, we'll give you a shout out on the pod. So go do that now. Thank you. All right. Let's pop into our first article, which is about microchips for body monitoring. Um, it's research coming out of Columbia University, led by Professor Ken Shepard and his PhD student Chen Shi. Um, um, sorry, before we move forward, I, I got to get a, get this off my chest. This is the question that everyone listening wants to know: How is this thing implanted? All right, I'm gonna say it, but don't get scared. These microchips have been implanted using hypodermic needles, just like a vaccine. But I want to be clear. The COVID-19 vaccine does not have any microchips in it, and these things are safe. So it's not about tracking your internet history or your political affiliation, and Bill Gates isn't going to come running after you. This is about clinical applications using microchips, you know, for medical applications. So let's get that out of the way. I, I got to say, I'm I'm sure the tech is promising, and I'm I'm excited to learn about it, but this is one of those moments where you got to read the room. Come on yeah, now, read, like this is not read the, the timing. Room, <laughs> but seriously, this is a big, interesting use of technology, so let's dive into it. Okay. Implanted electronics are very, very useful for medical applications. Um, they can be used for all sorts of things like measuring temperature, blood pressure, blood sugar, blood oxygen levels, respiration, all sorts of clinical monitoring applications, just like all the sensors that they hook up to you in your body. There's a less invasive way in doing it is using a small microchip. Um, One of the biggest hurdles to using these microchips so far is that these implanted electronics don't use space very wisely. So they're not very volume efficient. So they're kind of bulky. They require multiple sets of chips, uh, external packaging that's waterproof, the wires, transducers, and a battery. Basically, What this team from Columbia did is like they said, let's strip away everything that's non-essential. Let's just do a quick demonstration of what we can to make the smallest possible microchip in the world. And that's what they did. So they made. Wait, sorry. Uh, Go ahead. Finish up. And then I'll ask my question. Well, they made this microchip that's the size of a grain of table salt to measure temperature inside the body. Okay. So you said no battery, right? no battery how how's it powered is it like passively powered yeah it's it's so the microchip itself is passive and it okay. becomes powered using an external power source so there are 
devices that have done something similar in, in the past, and actually, Farbode, you and I have done some research on some of it, powering devices using RFID, so you yeah, yeah, emit yeah. electromagnetic waves, and the power that's transferred through the air is the way that they wirelessly power a device. So they looked at using RFID for this application, but again, they're mm-hmm. going to make the smallest thing possible, and they achieved it. They made the smallest uh, chip as a system in the world. Um but they couldn't do that with RFID because the wavelengths were too big. They would have needed an antenna that's larger than the actual device itself. So right. they went back to the drawing board and they thought about how how can you transfer power wirelessly and transfer data wirelessly. And the mechanism they ended up deciding on was using ultrasound waves. So super short wavelength, super high frequency uh, sound waves being sent through the body and used to power these little microchips using a piezoelectric transducer. So with these sensor setups, whether it's RFID or ultrasonic, you always have the passive sensor. In this case, it's the microchip. And then you have the unit that's actually sending a signal and then getting a signal and then analyzing what's going on. So you still need to have a reader of some sort, right? Exactly. In this case, is, is the reader like some, I don't know, is it like something you can put on your body, like an air tag or like... What does that apparatus look like? In their testing applications, the mm-hmm. reader that you're talking about is just a typical ultrasonic probe that like you see okay. you know, when you get an ultrasound reading on like to see something inside your body, they put the little transducer gel on there and hold the probe. You know, it's no bigger than like, I don't know, a marker. That, that's about the size of the probe that they were using in this case. Um, they talked about potentially designing their own ultrasound probe in the future for this type of application, but for now they've been able to use one normal clinical use ultrasonic probe. Um, okay. They basically have this little microchip that's the size of a grain of salt. They inject it inside the body and using a little oscillator on there, basically that changes the frequency at which it vibrates depending on the temperature. They're able to use this ultrasonic probe to both power the device and then read the signal coming back from the little tiny device and tell what the temperature is inside the body with relative accuracy. So so they're, they're reading temperature data and that, that's the main thing they're doing right now, right? Yeah, they're not skimming credit card numbers or looking for what you like on Facebook. Um, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thankful for that, you know, and knowing that if Bill Gates wanted that and any information about my body, he'd have to run after me with an ultrasonic scanner. That that makes me feel better. But what I was curious about is like, can you read other data, like other health information? Maybe not right now, but like down the road. Yeah. So the temperature was the easiest one for them to implement because they only needed this small oscillator se- uh, okay. temperature sensor. They say, you know, in the future, as these systems get more complex, there's the ability to look at kind of the list that I mentioned before, blood pressure, blood sugar, Blood oxygen levels, those are the main ones. I think it would be really, really cool for blood sugar to think, like, you don't have to prick your finger anymore. All you have to do is hold up a little reader to the spot in your arm where you've implemented this microchip, and you can tell your blood sugar, you know, at any point throughout the day, completely non-invasively. So that's something that I'm looking forward to. Just to clarify, that's, like, with no modifications to the chip itself, right? Yeah. Because it's just as is. Gotcha. That's awesome, man. That's really cool. And and it's, uh, it's... Even just the temperature, even though it seems like just a demonstration, it's actually got some applications right away for cancer treatment, uh, for ultrasonic you know, type of muscle and nerve stimulation. It's really useful, and I'm excited to see where this goes. And I'm 
actually learning more about it, I'm less scared about getting microchipped because I know that these have, you know, good clinical applications and they can't actually track me down and stalk me like a lot of people are worried about. Well, the, the funny thing with the microchip is like, I, I know we kind of joke about like people think they're getting implanted with microchips with the vaccines, but in, in certain places, like, I don't know if you remember, but Venmo started releasing these chips you could like put in the webbing of your hand. I think it was in Sweden, someplace in Europe. And instead of having to carry, you know, a credit card or your phone around, you could kind of swipe your hand and you could pay with your account. So some people are like pretty cool with having little chips inside of them if it means they're getting some sort of utility out of it. And for this, especially like if down the line, it means real-time health monitoring, I could see the benefits. I could even see myself voluntarily signing up for one. So yeah. great research coming out of Columbia. I Again, the timing maybe could have been better, but <laughs> you shouldn't be holding back great research for anything. Exactly. And actually... This is a pretty good topic. It's a great segue into our second article because we're talking about small chips. So let's start talking about two-dimensional transistors. Now, before I start, just to understand like the impact of this research and like how important it is, I want to talk about the players involved. So you got MIT, you got UC Berkeley, you got Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, National Taiwan University, King Abdullah University of Science and Technology in Saudi Arabia, and the research is funded by NSF, United States Army, I think United States Navy. A lot of big money coming in. A yeah, lot so of parties interested. A lot of people who are very important and care a lot about this research, so I should pay attention. Exactly. That's really the main point I'm driving home here. Just like, listen to me. This was a little dense, so I've tried to make it as easy to understand as possible, but bear with me. Clarify as needed. Let's get it rolling. So before we start talking about anything transistor related, we got to talk about Moore's Law. What is Moore's Law? It's this idea that every year we should be able to double the number of transistors that are within a chip. The reason transistors are important is because they're like the logic gates, the yes or the no's, the zeros or the ones. So the more of them you have on a chip, the more power you're able to get out of the chip. That's the basic idea. Okay. Now, as time has gone on, we've hit like some potholes here and there, um, specifically in 2000 to 2007. We hit a manufacturing pothole where the advances were kind of stifled. And it wasn't until 3D architecture manufacturing process of transistors came into play in 2007 that we were able to pick it back up again and keep the good times rolling with the massive innovation that was coming out. But once again, we might be reaching a bottleneck. And this time it's about the physical constraints. So we've, we've started to get so small that we might just not be able to fit anymore onto the, the wafer, the semiconductor wafer. Okay, but so since... 1965, that's when Gordon Moore set his mm -hmm. Moore's Law. He was the CEO of uh, Fairchild Semiconductor and then Intel. Basically, since 1965, for the most part, we've been able to stick with this law of doubling the amount of transistors in, you know, in a semiconductor chip every year. We hit some bumps along the road. You say we're coming up to another bottleneck. What's the mm -hmm. solution here? You know, we overcame it in 2007. What can we do to fix this next bottleneck? I, I, love, I love the question. So the solution a lot of people believe is two-dimensional materials. And again, for context, two-dimensional is an, a material that is a few atoms thick. So like extremely, extremely thin. Okay. And the reason they believe, that the, the community believes that this could be the next step forward is because of this thing called the channel length. Um, the analogy I want to use here, tell me if it's good or not. I thought it was a pretty good way of explaining things. Imagine there's a river and you have two sides of the river. Now to get over it, you got to build a bridge. Let's imagine that the bridge itself 
is the transistor gate, the thing that's going on and off. And on okay. one side, you have this source. And on the other side, you have this drain where the current is traveling. So the distance between the source and the drain is the channel length. The smaller the channel length, the more transistors you should be able to fit on any given space. So right now, the, the smallest channel lengths that we have in the industry, the, the leaders are anywhere between 5 to 10 nanometers. But going with the two-dimensional route, scientists believe that we can increase the number of transistors we are fitting on a chip tenfold. Okay. So we can wow. keep Moore's Law going for a couple more years. Exactly. Okay. So basically, we're just looking at these really, really thin materials because it helps us reduce the overall form factor of every single transistor, mm -hmm. increase the density on a chip by, you know, 10 times, which is way more than what uh, Gordon Moore wants us to do every year with 2Xing. So we've, we're able to, you know, push, push off Moore's law for a few more years into the future. Exactly. That, that's exactly right. But with all great things, there are some limitations. And the one that I want to talk about really quickly is called the metal-induced gap state. And what that might lead to is the formation of Schottky barriers. So real quick, all you really need, that's a lot of words, I understand. Yeah, yeah. But what you need to know here is that whenever a metal makes contact with that two-dimensional semiconducting sheet, um, there's this like Schottky barrier, which is a phenomenon that inhibits the flow of electrons, right? So if you're inhibiting the flow, they're not able to go from the source to the drain that well, and the efficiency comes down overall. So you want to basically get that to zero. The way they got around this is actually pretty interesting. It's a simple solution. Instead of using metal connections, they started using semi-metal connections. A semi-metal has a conductivity between a metal and a semiconductor. And the one they used here was bismuth. By using bismuth, they completely got rid of this metal-induced gap states that were happening. Awesome. Great. But now there's another issue. You have... Um, again, you have metal contacts that whenever they make contact with a semiconducting sheet, the resistance is too high. And if you have an apparatus, an instrument to be able to understand what's happening on the circuit board. So Dan, you know, we've taken electric circuit analysis courses. We use voltmeters and amp meters. Yeah. They send little signals from one point of the circuit to the other to understand what's going on. But if the resistance is too high, those, those signals are disappearing and they're not able to understand what's happening and they can't develop that well. Okay. Does so, that make sense? Yeah, we've got these thin materials now. Um, we think it's the future. The pros of it is that it can greatly reduce the size of these transistors, which will help us increase the density of them holding on to Moore's law. The mm -hmm. cons are that there's sometimes the shock key barrier thing, which basically like this thin material mixed with the metal, the electrical properties aren't that good. And then also we have high resistance. They think they've solved one of those issues already, which is the shock key barrier by replacing the typical metal with a semi-metal. So it seems like we've taken a lot of steps in the right direction for using 2D semiconductor materials. So can you help me like do a gut check to where we are in terms of reality? When will this become you know, part of the chip that I buy and put in my PC next time I build one? Absolutely. So there's still some work to be done, but this is like a monumental step that that was taken in the two-dimensional transistor development field. I'm going to shoot some numbers at you real quick. The contact resistance with the inclusion of bismuth, that, that's one of the big discoveries. The secret sauce, we haven't said this episode yet. The secret yeah. sauce, the bismuth, resulted in a 123 ohm micrometer contact resistance, which is the lowest recorded ever, at least to the researchers that were writing this. And the on-state current density, that's the density of the current going from the source to the drain, is 1,135 microamps per micrometer on the new two-dimensional uh, 
bass that they're using. And that is also the highest that's ever been recorded. Okay. So, so th- these are two big uh, parameters to keep in mind. Like big performance measurements, you want to reduce yes. the resistance, maximize the current density, and they got the best ever marks in both of those categories ever known to man, at least at the time this research was discovered. Exactly. And by being able to reduce that contact resistance, they've kind of like cracked a, a big hurdle. And now they're able to keep developing, keep reducing. And again, you asked a good question. When can I see it in my laptop or other electronics? Making this, any chip really commercial and getting manufacturing figured out is a big step. So I'm honestly not sure to be on, to be like fair, but anytime in the next five years or so, I wouldn't be like, I don't think it's out of the realm of reality. To start seeing this maybe in prototype stuff first maybe like some experimental designs but i i think we're getting closer than ever before and having all this extra power all this extra um density it probably it might get us uh a step further towards quantum computing as well i imagine definitely definitely we're starting to understand better what happens in two dimension on the sub nano scale which is a pre- perfect segue to get into the quantum realm awesome well We've been talking about powerful chips, and they're a great prerequisite for our next topic, which is about using AI to diagnose any issue, really, that comes up in a spacecraft that's traveling through deep space. So we've got to give a huge shout out to Ivana Gizzi. Um, She's a Pathways intern at NASA's Goddard Center, and so she's an intern, and this research was her project, her development, and it's making headlines all around. So Ivana, you're killing it. We're huge fans. Um, What... She discovered, you know, her, what her project was, is called RACER, uh, Research and Artificial Int- Intelligence for Spacecraft Resilience, the acronym's RACER. Um, basically what RACER Perfect is... Perfect acronym, by the way. Yeah. Big fan of that acronym. Love it. Um, basically, right now, spacecrafts on their own, when there's an issue, they basically have this reporting system like a check engine light on your car. So it knows when something is wrong and a light turns on saying something is wrong. But that's okay. the extent of it. It doesn't tell you what is causing the issue. It doesn't tell you how to fix it with, you know, save a few very, very niche scenarios. Spacecrafts can't diagnose or fix the issues on their own. That's, mm-hmm. you know, why we have this cliche, Houston, we have a problem, um, is because something goes wrong in the spacecraft. They can't figure it out there. So they let mission control know on the ground and they do all the diagnostics and they try to figure that out. Okay. Um, what ivana discovered is or what she's been working on is making this project called racer and racer's capability will basically replace the human intervention you know like taking your car to the mechanic and saying hey my check engine light is on can you tell me what's wrong and how can i fix it racer can do that using ai so it can look at the spacecraft look at all the different parameters look at the context of the situation and try to get a root cause analysis kind of like a detective with a whodunit you know like figure out you know, in clue, who killed who in what room using what apparatus. This is what Racer can do with inside the spacecraft. Dude, this is so much like um, the research coming out of Carnegie Mellon. I think it was PhD student Prithvia Karya. He did the IoT device that could analyze the diagnostic codes of cars, actually. Perfect that you yeah. brought it up. And do a similar analysis. I think, what? Oh, geez. Like episode eight, nine? Yeah, Probably yeah I think it's episode eight. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And wow. since then, Prithvi's become a huge friend of the pod. So we, we love out. you, Prithvi. Yeah, shout <laughs> out. Um, but um, it, it's very, very similar. So I'll break down uh, 
Ivana's approach. And basically it's a two headed approach using machine learning and then classical AI. And I want to talk a little bit about the distinction between the two as we go into that. So I'll first go into the machine learning, which is most similar to what we were talking about in episode eight with Prithvi's research. Um, They've got a ton of data on all the spacecraft that have failed and why they failed and what caused it and what the symptoms were. So using machine learning, which is great for using large sets of previous data and making inferences between those sets of data. Um, She used machine learning to learn off the thousands of data points of what the previous symptoms were when a spacecraft failed and what the cause of that symptom was. So this machine learning algorithm learned all those relationships between symptoms and causes. So then when a familiar set of symptoms comes up, it can with very high likelihood predict what's wrong with the spacecraft and how to fix it. That makes Um, sense. It's, super rigorous and it works really well for symptoms that have already appeared in the past and they already have data for but you know when you're developing new systems and you're sending spacecraft to deep space and like new areas where new symptoms might pop up or new issues might pop up that's not the silver bullet so you need something else to make it more rigorous so she's using classical ai for that which is really really good at you know transforming human knowledge or human thought processes and putting it into a declarative form that a computer can understand. So the machine learning is great for the previous past data and she's using classical AI to predict future failures and transfer into a computer language how the engineers that designed the system might diagnose and fix those failures. So by interviewing engineers and understanding what their possible causes of failure are for the spacecraft and what the possible solutions for that could be, she's used classical AI to kind of provide a safety net for those new symptoms that pop up that haven't been detected before and also try to understand how we can fix those and do it all autonomously. So the benefits of this uh, Razor system are like twofold. You have the machine learning that can detect uh, multiple things, triggers that are happening at once and relate them to an event that's already happened before. And then you have the AI component that takes the thought process of an actual engineer and applies it to software so that when something comes up that we haven't seen before, it can think through what's actually causing it. Exactly. So like one of the engineering and technology directors at NASA Goddard said that, uh, Ivana's work racer is like, um, I don't know. It's like taking one of their engineers and all their thought processes and, you know, how they might diagnose something and copy pasting a subset of their brain and putting it inside the spacecraft. Um, gotcha. And that, that'll be really useful specifically for like small CubeSats, like tiny satellites that are unmanned and they go out into deep space and they do a bunch of monitoring on their own where you don't have a human on board that can do a diagnosis where you've got thousands and thousands of these satellites and you don't want mission control to have to diagnose every single one of these. Um, It's a great application for those, for those situations where you want these satellites to be able to autonomously diagnose what's wrong and potentially take corrective action um, without any human intervention at all. So have they tested that? Have, Have they tested the system's capability of effectively identifying issues no so this system hasn't been sent into space on any satellite yet but okay. the same engineering director i was talking about that says it's like taking copy paste of one of their best engineers mm-hmm. he said the next step for racer is putting it on a CubeSat and spending it sending it into space so i'm really excited to see how it does um likewise yeah they're talking a lot about the implications of this moving forward which is really exciting too um I know we talk a lot about AI. We talk a lot about technology. We don't always often talk about how the humans interacting with that or the culture surrounding that technology might be impacted by it. The human-machine um, interaction. That's exactly. all a big topic. HMI is very, very interesting, yeah. and I feel like it's kind of 
not it's not highlighted enough but in this case they talked about it and they said the biggest hurdle to the implementation of this racer system will probably not be the actual ai the actual technology um, they have confidence in racer and what ivana's work is but the biggest issue they see is actually a culture issue within nasa because most issues, you know, that cliche, Houston, we have a problem. Most issues are handled by humans on the ground at mission control. And gotcha. this will be a step-by-step approach for them to like slowly let off the reins and kind of let the satellite figure itself out in space rather than having the engineers on the ground involved. All right. Well, that's awesome. A lot of content we covered today, but and I think this is like the longest episode we've had so far, but yeah, I'm loving, I'm loving how much we talked and the topics we talked about in general. But now I want to take a moment and go back to something we talked about a while ago, and that was the giveaway. You guys have been amazing. You've been leaving feedback on our Instagram, on Twitter. You've been engaging with us. So we just wanted to show you how much we appreciate you, which is why we started the Arduino giveaway. And now we have our first winner. After a month, we're ready to announce the winner of the very first The Next Bike giveaway. And Dan, can you give me a drum roll real quick? Yeah, I'm drum rolling. There we go. Ivan Rigetti, thank you, my man. Thank you for all the comments you've been leaving. Thank you for the engagement. Dan and I really appreciate it. The team at Weevolver appreciates it. Thank you for your support, and we hope that we can keep making great content with your guys' feedback. Yeah, I think we're uh, super thankful for everyone that's been involved, and there's going to be more giveaways, so stay engaged on our social media. Um, it's you know something moving forward that we're excited to continue appreciating everyone from our community. Absolutely. See you next time, everyone. Peace. That's all for today. The Next Byte Podcast is produced by Weevolver. And to learn more about the topics we discussed today, visit Weevolver.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please review and subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or one of your favorite platforms. I'm Forbode. And I'm Daniel. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.